0: Uh, if you got your Bible, open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Something's feeding back every time I talk. Um, so we're still in a uh, familiar, hopefully a familiar little neighborhood of, go- of the Gospel of Luke by now. We've been all around. Uh, This text that we're going to be studying tonight, Um, we're going to look at a different parable here in in chapter 14. While I'm thinking about it, after tonight, we just have one more parable to go. Ooh, ooh. And uh, Tullus Nelson is going to teach it to us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He's going to teach on the parable of the persistent widow. In Luke chapter 18. So be praying for him as he prepares to teach that. Sometime between now and then, go ahead and read that for yourself so that you'll be in a better position to learn from it when he teaches it. But tonight, we're going to consider our penultimate, our next to last parable from Luke 14, which is the parable of the great banquet. If you read the parable already, you'll know it's 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 similar to the what is called the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, um, that we looked at actually this past September, and interestingly, um, the parable of the, of the great banquet here has as part of its earlier context in Luke 14, another parable called the parable of the wedding feast, which is different than the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. Uh, so we're going to say a little bit about this one also, and, uh, since it's such a part of the context of the parable of the great banquet. Um, and for that reason, we're going to read the fuller context when we read it in just a parable, rather than just the one parable, or the main parable we're going to study. So if you found Luke 14, uh, our main parable is going to begin uh, in uh, verse 16. That's when the main parable begins, and it'll run through, the, through verse 24. But we're going to begin our reading tonight uh, in verse 1 of the chapter, and read all the way through uh, verse 24. Uh, So follow along as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he, that would be Jesus, when he went to, to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite friends or friends your friends, or your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, Clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I ask, uh, again, that you might give us eyes to see the truth in what the Lord Jesus has to teach us here. Would you give us not just eyes to see it, minds to understand clearly what he's saying? Would you give us um, hearts to embrace the truth that he puts very straightforwardly to us? Would you give us wills to obey and submit to what he says? Give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as I said, our our main, our main focus is going to be the parable that Jesus told in the second half of that passage that we just read. I do think, though, that the earlier context, which is why we started in verse 1, is very important to understanding why Jesus told the parable in the first place and then what he said in the parable. So, what I want us to do is to think through some of that context first. That that context will be verses one to fifteen, which includes Jesus healing that man on the Sabbath, uh, the parable of the wedding feast that follows, um, and it and it sets up our main parable. And then we're going to take a closer look at our main parable. Um, and so, if you're taking notes, here here's how I'm going to break down how we're going to think through that main parable. First, in verses sixteen through twenty. Um, I want us to see the rejected invitation, the rejected invitation, and, and look at the, our look at the surrounding context is going to help us see Jesus' intention here. We're going to consider the invitation given and what we might learn about ourselves from the excuses that follow the invitation. That's verses 16 to 20. Uh, second, in verses 21 to 23, we find the surprising invitations the surprising invitation, surprising based on the context of the parable, surprising to the people that Jesus was talking to, but certainly anticipated in Scripture. And then finally, verse 24, Jesus ends with the final warning. Again, considering the context of the parable will help us see this more clearly, the boldness of Jesus in that verse and the sting of what he says. Even though we have one more parable to consider after this one, the one that us is going to teach next week, this parable, as I, the more I thought about it, um, would have been a fitting conclusion to this series uh, in the parables. I, I, I've said since the beginning, like the very beginning of this series back in the fall, um, that these parables that Jesus told, and there are a, a bunch of them, around 40 of them, uh, they're all about the, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom he was coming to establish, and it's, they, they're talking about what the kingdom is, the worth of that kingdom, how a person uh, can enter it, who enters it, what life is like in his kingdom, and this parable tonight would be a fitting conclusion in the sense that this is a strong exhortation to take Christ and his exhortation—I mean his kingdom—seriously, um, not to neglect it for lesser pleasures, not to assume anything. But as Jesus said in Matthew six thirty-three seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek it, pursue it, live it as the center of your life and the central focus and purpose of your life. And that's, that's that's what I want us to see here. And so let's take a closer look. Let's familiarize, familiarize ourselves with the context uh, in which Jesus told our main parable. So verse 1 presents an interesting scene. Uh, it begins with one Sabbath. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, if you've read the Gospels enough times, just about any time you read a passage that begins, it was the Sabbath, one Sabbath, you know something's about to go down. And the rest of the verse um, doesn't do anything to allay those suspicions. It says, on that Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, which meant, of course, he was invited to dinner. This was a dinner party but a weird one because it just says, the last phrase says, and they were watching him carefully. That had to have been awkward. Um, No doubt Jesus knew their thoughts and their motivations when they invited him. Um, But you have to wonder what kind of awkward silences were there at that dinner party. And they're just like, and even in the story, he asks them stuff. and They don't say anything. Like, that was really awkward. But verse 2 says that a man showed up, probably someone brought this man who had dropsy, and dropsy was a terrible disease, caused swelling and heart failure, terrible, terrible. And obviously, they brought him in hopes of being healed. Verse 3 said that Jesus took the opportunity to address the men, the Pharisees and the lawyers who were watching him carefully, and he asked them their opinion on a, on a matter. He said, is it okay to heal somebody on the Sabbath? They didn't say anything. And so, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. He just said, "I'll just give you the answer." Yeah, here you go. And He does it, um, and then he essentially um, calls them out in verse five. Um, by the way, I got to think: what what would that have been like? I, I try to think about what would it have been like to see these, some of these miracles that Jesus performed. A man who had dropsy would have had like tremendous swelling. Like, you just see that swelling, just go away. That's crazy. That'd be crazy to see with your own eyes. Anyway, um, so uh, he, he, he calls them out in verse 5 for being hypocrites. He said that you would absolutely rescue your son or, or one of your animals if it fell in a pit on, on the Sabbath. I mean, he could tell that they were kind of sitting in judgment on him for healing this man on the Sabbath um, and, 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 of course, he calls them out for that, and they, don't, they still don't say anything. It's like, why did you even invite me over? They're not saying anything. So Jesus took this opportunity when he's talking to them to address something else. In verse 7, he noticed that all of the other religious rulers and lawyers and Pharisees were invited to this same dinner, and many of them were choosing the places of honor to sit when they arrived. And so Jesus told them a parable, this parable of the wedding feast, uh, not only to teach them a lesson about this practice, but one that he knew would also set up the main parable for tonight, pretty well. Um, beginning in verse eight, Jesus likens the kingdom of God to how someone might already think about a wedding feast. He says, he basically says, when you go to a wedding feast, you don't go sit in the place of honor. You wouldn't go just as a random. Person invited to a wedding, you wouldn't go and sit at like the bride and groom's table. You wouldn't go sit in, at the table of the wedding party. Um, that would just get real awkward real quick when somebody says, Bro, don't, this is not your seat. You wouldn't go sit at the family's table. You're just a guest. So they are more distinguished than you in that situation, and it would look bad on you to go and sit there, and it would be embarrassed, embarrassing to have to get take your plate and go somewhere else. On the contrary, Even if you are one of the distinguished guests, Jesus is saying, if you should sit at just one of the ordinary places, somebody's going to say, you know, you're part of the wedding party. You're part of the family. Why don't you go sit at this this place specially for you? And you would be honored in that way. Jesus is saying we already know things like that in our normal life. We kind of know that intuitively in situations like that. And he says the same kind of thing holds true with the kingdom of God. He says in verse 11, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, he's calling out their pride and their self-congratulatory attitudes, those things that they do that basically, um, they're only seeking the glory that comes from the praise of other people. They assume that if they're praised by other people, then surely that means God feels the same way. And then Jesus doesn't let up. Beginning in verse 12, he gets a lot more specific in verse 12. He he uh he basically looks around. I mean you just just kind of crawl up inside the words of the passage and you can just see it. You know, he he's, he he looks all around, he scans the room and he, and you probably notice that everybody looks the same. You know? He looks around the room and everybody's around the table and they all just really look the same. Like you 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 Um, They're all robed and tasseled. They look very clean. I'm sure the guy with dropsy felt a little out of place. Um, I'd be willing to bet Jesus felt a little out of place at this party. And in verse 12, I have to believe Jesus was looking right at the guy who was hosting the dinner. Because it says, he said to the man who had invited him, looking right at him, Jesus said, when you, when you have a din- dinner, don't just invite your friends. <laughs> don't, don't invite your friends and your family. Don't invite your rich neighbors, essentially just the people that already praise you or the people that you would like to praise you like rich neighbors. That's somebody who cares nothing, but, for nothing but self-glory and, and, and worldly fame or comfort. Jesus says in verse 13 that instead invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. He 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 he'll 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 use this same litany of things again in the later in the passage. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. He's basically saying, why didn't you invite that guy with dropsy? <laughs> I mean, like, invite the guy who can do nothing for you in return. Um You know, invite the guy that can do nothing for you in return. That 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 matters because you weren't, it would matter in, in the whole scheme of things because you're not looking to get anything from Him. You're looking to give something to Him. You're, in that sense, you're humbling yourself before God and you're forsaking your own glory and you're looking for the glory of God instead, knowing that He sees in secret and will reward you. Jesus says, what is better? He says in verse 14, He basically says, what is better than the applause of men? What, what is better than all of the the approving nods and the and the hearty agreement of all the robed and tasseled friends that are sitting around you what's better than that is to be repaid at the resurrection of the just that's verse 14 it's very it's very similar to what he said again and again in the sermon on the mount it may sound familiar in that way and i think it's helpful to know that because knowing that this is so similar to the the kinds of things he said in the Sermon on the Mount, can help us know what Jesus is and is not saying here. Jesus is not saying here that we, in a sense, earn our way to heaven, earn our way to a reward in the resurrection of the just by doing nice things for people. He's not saying we kind of earn, we kind of climb another rung of the ladder every time we do a nice thing for somebody who can't pay us back. He's not saying we can earn our way to reward in heaven by doing our best to stay out of the spotlight and then do nice things for people. That isn't a ladder for reward. Knowing that what he says here is very similar to the things he said in the Sermon on the Mount, remember that Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are sort of bookended. The first Beatitude, the last Beatitude... Uh, with this phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not, if you do this, it will be the kingdom of heaven. It already is, is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, all these things I'm talking about, about doing things in secret so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you, that is, I'm talking about, that's the lifestyle of someone who already belongs to the kingdom not as trying to earn the kingdom, but already belongs to the kingdom through dependence and faith in Christ. And the overflow of that, what comes from that is a humble heart that seeks the smile of God on your life more than the applause of men, that knows that the kingdom of God is for sinners of all kind and not any sinner is more deserving than any other sinner. That's, this, that is what Jesus is saying here. He's talking to Pharisees who believe that they already belong to the kingdom. And so Jesus is calling them out because the fruit they display in their lives don't line up with that, with someone who already belongs to the kingdom. In reality, Jesus is calling His dinner host and the guests to repentance and faith. And it should have made them uncomfortable and question perhaps something that they previously assumed. But what happens instead? Jesus had just said in verse 14, to live your life in such a way that the reward at the resurrection of the just, that is your goal instead of the praise of men. Live your life for the glory of God instead of your own glory. Humble yourselves before God in Christ, not just because you owe it, but because He's worth it. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table heard these things, He said to him, the man said to Jesus in reply, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, he was saying to Jesus, Hear, hear, we totally agree. Everything Jesus had just said had fallen on deaf ears. He was warning them of their pride and of their lack of humility before God, and they're like, Hear, hear, we agree with everything you're saying. They thought everything was good. And it's in light of that context that Jesus tells the parable for our consideration tonight, the parable of the great banquet. And so with that, let's dive into it and think first about the invitation rejected. So the man had just said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He wasn't wrong, but he wasn't right either about himself. And when he says who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. He's referring to sort of the end of history at the resurrection that God had promised. Um, A lot of passages talk about that. Maybe the clearest example is Isaiah 25, 6. Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And when it says all peoples, it's meaning all all people who are his by repentance and faith, because there's plenty of judgment passages there too. But for God's people, God promises at the end of history a a grand old time. Luke 13, 29, Jesus said, people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Revelation 19, 9 says, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the parable of the great banquet is Jesus making clear who is invited. Who will be there and who won't. It's a sobering word that needs to be heard, but it's good news for those who have ears to hear. So Jesus hears this person at the fair uh, 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 one of the Pharisees maybe basically say, "Here here, we uh, we agree completely with you. We're looking forward to the resurrection of the just just like you said." Yes, yes. And Jesus takes that opportunity to tell him another parable with a great banquet at the center of the story. So hopefully they'll get the picture. Jesus begins the parable in verse 16. He says, A man once gave a great banquet and and invited many. And he continues in verse 17. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. That was a common practice in those days an invitation would go out, and then it was time. They would, a second invitation would go. Um, and um, what, what does all this mean? What's, what does it symbolize? Great banquet invited many. A man, servant goes, come, everything is ready. I think it's in keeping with all the other parables Jesus told, um, the banquet here represents exactly what was being talked about, this resurrection feast at the end of the age, in the kingdom of God, for the, those who belong to it. In verse 16, invitations were sent, which seems to represent all the promises and the invitation of the Old Testament, that salvation is coming through a Savior who's going to come. When in verse 17 it says he sent his servant again to those who were invited, that everything was ready, that represents Jesus himself coming to say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So verse 16 are basically the promises of the the Savior coming. Verse 17, the Savior has come. He calls sinners to repentance, finds salvation in life that was promised. But what happens in the parable? Excuses. Verse 18 says, They all alike began to make excuses. Jesus gives three examples. And I love William Hendrickson was a New Testament scholar. He points out in his commentary how stupid all of the excuses were. The first guy in verse 18 says, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. As if we're to believe, Hendrickson points out, that this guy bought that field sight unseen. No doubt he had already given that land a thorough look over before he ever bought it. And then the next guy comes in verse 19, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excuse. Again, Hendricks said, did he not examine them before he bought them? Then a third guy in verse 20, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come as if he could not come with his wife. This is a lot like the parable of the sower. Um, that Jesus told in Matthew 13, if you remember that one, Jesus talked about the seed of the gospel being sown on different kinds of soils. But, but those like, that grew up in, in thorns, it's like the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, among other things, choking out the word and make it of no effect upon the hearer. Basically, they're saying other things are more important. And if there's anything that we need to take away from these guys, because in the story... We're these guys. Um, We are far more like these guys than we are Jesus. And we're far more like these guys than the other guys that Jesus is about to introduce into the story. We're like these guys. John Piper, in his book, um, A Hunger for God, I commend that book to you all about prayer, prayer and fasting. It's one of the greatest books on prayer and fasting I've ever read, A Hunger for God. You can even get it for free on desiringgod.org, digital download, read it. But in that book, Jesus, uh, John Piper, Ain't Jesus, good but ain't that good, John Piper talks about how we, quote, nibble so long at the table of the world That our soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. I mean, what's our excuse? We're not buying land and oxen. We're distracted. We're just distracted people, distracted with our phones and scrolling or whatever we are. But that's not new. 500 years ago-ish, the French theologian and philosopher Blaise Pascal, he wrote this, The only thing that consoles us for our miseries is diversion, and yet it is the greatest of our miseries, for it is that above all which prevents us from thinking about ourselves, and I would add, about Christ, and leads us imperceptibly to destruction. Diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our death. Distraction. That was 500 years ago. What did they have to distract them? I don't know. I really don't. Well, we got a lot of it. Our phones... Our friends, our plans, our school, our work, our relationships, our pleasures, and it goes and it goes and it goes. I mean just The excuses are so many, and they're just as stupid as I bought some ox. I want to go see what they look like. I, I bought some land. I need to go in. I need to see what's on whatever. Jesus was telling this parable about those Pharisees and so many of the Jews who had the Scriptures, had the promises, knew a Savior was coming, knew the Bible. But when He came, they had better things to do. And we're just like them. We're just like them. So many of us grew up in the Bible belt. VBS, all our lives. We know the stories. I knew Noah and the Ark before I knew what ankles were. Why did I choose that as my example? I don't know. Ankles seemed like something that everybody knows about. I could, but we could give all the answers. We can give all the Bible answers. I know all the Bible answers. I can can sound good at church. I can look good in Sunday school. But if spy footage of my life, it would show I have better things to do. We're seeking our own glory. When, as the Scripture says, as we started out tonight, if we've been raised with Christ through repentance and faith, He calls us to seek the things that are above To build our lives on Christ and on His Word, This this will never fail. It will always satisfy. Well, as the passage continues, Jesus switches gears. He moves on from the rejected invitation to issue what those at the dinner party would have considered surprising invitations. In verse 21, the servant tells the master of the of those who rejected the invitation and the attention now turns elsewhere. First, he said, go out to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Bring them in. And then he said in verse 23, go out to the highways and the hedges, which would have been where the most disreputable people would have been, and compel them to come in. In other words, go out to those that you would least expect to come and bring them in. Jesus was always doing this, by the way, in his ministry. We're in chapter 14, right? Just look over to the first verse of chapter 15. What does it say? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And who was grumbling in the next verse? The Pharisees and the scribes. This man receives sinners and eats with them. But in so many places, just in Luke's gospel, Jesus is with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors, just dishonest guys. Rip you off in a heartbeat, right? Dishonest guys. Sinners, same is true with the poories, with the poories, with the sick, crippled, blind, like a man with dropsy. They brought it here. These would be the people that, A, the, the, the Pharisees would have scoffed at the thought of their being the the, the loved and privileged of, of God, right? But these are also the kind of people that they would think of themselves. I would never dream that God would favor me. That's why, by the way, the verbs are used, bring them in, compel them to come. Because this kind of mercy from God to them would be so hard for them to believe. Jesus is saying, these are the people who will be around the table on that day, who know they have nothing, they deserve nothing, who are overwhelmed at the mercy of Christ toward them and happily repent of all other vain pleasures and look for their life in him. And Jesus ends in verse 24 with a final warning. I have to believe Jesus was making dead-eye contact with everybody in the house around that dinner table, because he says, "For I tell you," and if this, if this, if this um, was translated into Southern English, that's a y'all not a you. I tell y'all, and where is he? He's in the robed and tasseled home. I tell y'all, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. In other words, in another place, Jesus says, those who seek to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Jesus doesn't just call us to believe He calls us to follow. And that's implied in the word repentance, by the way. Repentance is turning away from what you were, and not just what you were, turning away from what you're still tempted and prone to be, and turn to Jesus to be what he calls you and gifts you to be in him. Martin Luther um, said in his first of 95 theses, the first one, He wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The whole life. Repentance is not a one-time thing. I repent and I believe and now I'm saved. No, you're not done with repentance. Your whole life is repentance. Whole life is repenting. That's his first thesis. His last recorded words before he died. Decades later. We are beggars. This is true. Those who find the kingdom are not those who invite Jesus into their house and watch Him carefully so that they might catch Him and accuse Him of something. But those who invite Jesus into their lives and watch Him carefully so that they can humble themselves before Him, trust only in His saving work for them, and follow Him and live for Him all their life long. And I say, Lord, grant that to be us. The Pharisee wasn't wrong, by the way, when he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He wasn't wrong. He just rejected the way there. And I pray that we would hold fast to Christ who is the way. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this parable. Thank You for thank you for the scriptures who are, uh, that are so rich they're so real they're so honest it hold a mirror it holds a mirror up to us and doesn't flatter us so lord i pray that we would give an honest look to ourselves in this text and and ask what 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 excuse am i giving what, what is my stupid excuse that I probably give every day, multiple times every day, every time I'm prompted to do what is right, to, to read the Word, to, to pray, to talk to someone else about Jesus, to, um, to go to church on Sunday or Wednesday? What stupid excuse do I go to most often? Lord, I believe, so help our unbelief. We believe. Help us believe more. Help us to be like the, the poor and the lame and the blind and the cripple. Help us to be like those from the highways and the hedges who are astounded that Jesus would call and welcome us. Help us to be that kind of person who runs into your kingdom, runs to Jesus every day. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.